Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Today we're telling the story of a shipwreck that created a city and a nation. Some 375 years ago this year, in 1647, a Dutch East India Company ship called the New Harlem was wrecked off the coast of present-day South Africa, just north of the Cape of Good Hope. The experience of its survivors laid the path for the settlement of Southern Africa by Europeans and all its attendant consequences. For the indigenous Khoikhoi people, who were gradually erased, for the West Africans, who were enslaved and imported, and for the many Dutch and French Huguenots who would struggle to survive in this pioneer society, but succeeded. My guest is Dr. Gerald Grunwald. His research focuses on the development of Cape Town during the 17th and 18th centuries, when it formed part of the empire created by the Dutch East India Company, or VOC. Dr. Grunewald has written a number of academic journal articles in English and Afrikaans exploring this history and is therefore the go-to person when it comes to thinking about the very foundation of this unique society. Thank you so much for joining me today on Not Just the Tudors to talk about this important anniversary and this fantastic, if often quite terrible, story. Could you start off by telling us who the inhabitants of present-day South Africa were in the early 17th century? Yes, I'll restrict myself to the western part of South Africa because that's really what concerns the 17th century history of South Africa. And the main inhabitants were the Khoikhoi, which some people pronounce Kwekwe, and they were also groups called the Sun or the Bushmen. The word Khoikhoi is actually something that came from their own language. It means the men of men or the people of the people. But the word sun is not sure where it comes from. Some people believe it's actually a pejorative term from the koi for the sun. And that's why people still sometimes use the word bushman. So these two groups were interrelated. They originally came down from Botswana into southern Africa. And by the 17th century, they were spread all along the west coast of South Africa and the south coast up to the Kay River, roughly where Port Elizabeth is now. So the Khoikhoi were people whose whole culture revolved around livestock. The economy was based on it, their culture, everything. And because livestock were grazing, they practiced transhumans. They were pastoralists. So they moved around looking for grazing for their livestock. And it's important to keep in mind that the Khoikhoi didn't have an overarching leader, like a king or something. You had a whole variety of clans or smaller groups who controlled a certain area and within that area they would practice transhuman so they would spend the winter in one part and when spring comes they would move a bit south or north or wherever on the other hand towards the interior you had the sun the bushman who lived more in the drier part so the central part of the cape province is the Karoo, which is very dry and the sun people were hunter-gatherers they hunted wild animals collected wild plants and so on. And there was some interrelationship between these two groups. 
sometimes some koi koi because their whole culture was based on the keeping of livestock. If they lost their livestock in a war or something, they would become hunter-gatherers themselves and may join some groups. And I should also stress that they were very sparsely spread around these areas. We don't have any numbers for them because they were never counted properly, but it's clear that we're not talking about millions of people, probably a few thousands. Now, events change because of the arrival of the Dutch. So how did Dutch ships like the new Harlem come to be in the waters around Table Bay, just north of the Cape of Good Hope, in 1647? We have to take the story a bit further back. So the first contact between the inhabitants of Southern Africa and Europeans happened at the end of the 15th century with the Portuguese mariners going around the Cape towards India. But very soon, so between the 1490s and the early 1500s, there were a few times that the Portuguese stopped at what is Table Bay and even other parts of the south coast. But in 1510, there was a major skirmish between the Khoikhoi and the Portuguese, and they actually killed the Viceroy, Francisco de Almeida. And the Portuguese decided to never stop in southern Africa again, and that's why they started rounding the Cape and tended to stop in Mozambique. The reason you needed to stop somewhere is because the journey from Europe took so long. By the 17th century, it was 10 to 12 months from the Netherlands to the East Indies, that is modern Indonesia. So it's very hard for these wooden ships to keep sailing for such a long period. And so from the 1590s, when the Dutch started to explore the Indian Ocean area and Dutch ships started to round the coast of Africa towards the East Indies, they realized they needed to stop somewhere. And the English coincidentally did the same with the establishment of the English East India Company. The Dutch East India Company was founded in 1602, and all of them were advised by their superiors to stop more or less halfway. Now, they didn't always say exactly, so sometimes the ships would stop in St. Helena, the island in the South Atlantic. Sometimes they would stop somewhere on the southern coast, sometimes Saldana Bay, which is a bit to the north of Cape Town, sometimes Table Bay, which was the most common, it has a very safe harbour, sometimes further along the south coast. And even so far, much further south from South Africa, you have Mauritius. From 1590 to 1650, we have records that show that virtually every year there were at least one or two and as many as 20 ships stopping somewhere along the south and the southwestern coast of South Africa. And they would not just for a day or two, this would be the average that I've worked out is like they stop for three weeks. Because it's a lengthy process to get fresh water, to fill all the barrels, and then to try and find food. And the Khoikhoi, as I said earlier, they were livestock keepers, and Europeans were very desirous, having been on the ocean for five or six months for fresh meat. And the Khoikhoi were mostly willing to barter some of their livestock for European goods, particularly metals like copper and iron. And so before the New Harlem in 1647, more than half a century, where the Khoikhoi intermittently had contact with Europeans, and they knew which time of the year they could expect ships in Table Bay. And there are even some cases where some Khoikhoi leaders would learn English or Dutch rudimentally, and they would be mediators between these visitors from Europe and their own people. So I suppose the thing that changed in 1647 is that the New Harlem didn't land safely. It was wrecked on the coast. What's the story here? What happened to the crew? 
Normally, ships travel in a fleet. This could be as few as three or four, but as many as 12 or more ships. And so the New Harlem, this ship was built in the early 1640s. It was already the fourth time that it was making the return journey from the East Indies. And it was part of a small fleet. And there was this night of a terrible storm, and it founded on a sandbank about 10 kilometers north of the center of Cape Town, 10 kilometers north of Table Bay. And they tried desperately to move the ship from this bank, but they were not able to. And because of the waves and everything, the ship started to break apart slowly. Remember, these ships are huge. We're not talking about a little boat. There are hundreds of people on it, tons and tons of very valuable material. So this was the return fleet, which came back very heavily laden with valuable material like spices, pepper, sugar, linen, porcelain, to sell on the European market. And so the people in charge of these ships were incredibly fearful if something would happen to the cargo because they would be in deep trouble and they could be fired and even be have to pay fines. And so they spent several days trying to salvage as much of the material as they could. They realized a few days later that there's no way they could actually get the ship seaworthy. And the decision was made that the two ships that came with the Harlem would continue on their way back to the Netherlands because the directors of the VOC also were very adamant that it should arrive at a certain time. They didn't want to miss the trading season. And so all the stuff that they had salvaged from the New Harlem at that point, they put on these ships and they sent them back. And they then decided that about 60 men would remain on the coast of the Cape and they would continue to salvage as much as possible. It's not just the trading material that's valuable. These ships were an immense capital investment. So, you know, the wood itself is very valuable, but then all the ropes and the sails and the cannons and all the ironwork, all of these things meant something to the company. And if they could be salvaged, by all means, they should. So what happened then under the leadership of a senior officer called Leonbert Jans, these 60 men lived on the beach, slightly inland beyond the surf, and they built a little fort for themselves, which they called Fort Sandenburg, which means like sandcastle, <laughs> which was probably largely built from sand and wood and so on. And they would continue every day, go out of their little boats and try and salvage as much material from the ship. And they continued doing this for six months. And yeah, they lived on the coast and they tried to salvage as much as possible of the trading goods and other valuable things on the ship for their lords and masters in the Netherlands. What evidence do we have about their experience of living in Sanderburg? Dutch East India Company, being a trading company, was also an empire of paper. Everything needed to be jotted down and copied out. And the Dutch East India Archive is vast and remarkably well-reserved on three different continents, in Europe, South Africa, and Asia. And Leonard Jans, the leader of this expedition, kept a diary. So every day he jotted down exactly what they did that day, how much of what they salvaged. And yeah, we have his diary. And after six months, more ships called and they took some of the people with them back to the Netherlands. And then Jans and the captains of these ships would all write reports. He would tell them what was going on and they would write reports and he sent the reports back to the Netherlands. They were there for a total of 12 months. Unfortunately, we don't have a full diary for the second part of his stay. I'm interested to know what is it about their experience that made them think the Cape was a potential site for settlement? 
The main thing, I think, was the experience of the Koi Koi. So at first, they were very wary of the Koi Koi because some of them on previous stops around the Cape had experienced some violence from the Koi Koi. And so at first, they were particularly worried that they would steal any of the stuff that they were salvaging. And of course, that wouldn't look good. So the first few months, they wouldn't allow them to come close to Fort Sandenberg, even to work for them. Because by the 1640s, there was a small group, there were only a few dozen people called the Khoreng Haikona who lived in the area of what is now Cape Town. And they seem to have been poorer members of bigger clans who broke away. And they seem to have, by this stage, for a couple of decades, to made a living out of trading with Europeans. But they were generally quite poor. And at some point, after a few months, they started trading things like fish and other seafood with them. And then after six months, when Oikoi, who lived further north around Saldana Bay, came down to Table Bay to let their cattle graze. And these people then started trading with the ships and of the crew up in Harlem, some of their cattle. And in the documents that were drawn up subsequently in 1648-49, Leonard Jans stressed that reports that the Khoi Khoi are martial and unwilling to trade and dangerous are all wrong. And actually, they are very peace-loving and they're very willing to trade and so on. So I think this is one important reason. So it is the convenient, more or less halfway point. It's the safe harbor. It is the presence of a large indigenous population with trading goods that the Europeans are desirous for having. And the fourth thing, which is not normally mentioned, I think the experience of the Harlem foundering there is the realization that we should have a place where, if necessary, ships could be repaired, because that was an incredibly important function of Cape Town throughout the 17th and 18th century during the Dutch period is that not only is it for taking on fresh food and water and the sick people could go to hospital later when it was built, but also that ships could be repaired if possible. On the other hand, it is quite an endeavour to try to create a colony. And, you know, once all the survivors of the wreck had been collected to be taken home, what in the end, motivated the creation of Cape Town some, I guess, four years after the survivors had returned. So first I should point out that it is anachronistic to talk of a colony. It's very clear from all the evidence that the VOC never thought of a colony in the way that we did now. They thought of a service station, a small population. When it was founded in 1652, it was just over 100 people. And they never thought it would be much more than that. It would be one, 200 people who would famously, in the instruction for 1652, instructed the commander to build a fort and a garden. <laughs> it had to be defensible against possible enemies coming from the sea. It had to have fruit and vegetables. They could get meat from the koi koi. There's a lot of fresh water in the bay. And they needed to build a sort of infrastructure where they could repair ships. And I think that was, in their mind, the only thing that they ever wanted. And it would never be that horrendously expensive, considering the need for it and the fact that they could possibly help their future profits through doing this. Okay. Nevertheless, who initiates the decision to set up this kind of station? They come back in the middle of 1648, not only Leonard Jans, but all the captains, they all wrote various reports. And Jans very strongly recommended that the Cape should be considered as a halfway point and that they should 
establish something more permanent there than had been the case before. He convinced the directors of the VOC and he was asked to write a report. It is famously called Remonstranzi, a remonstration probably in English, and it's a very detailed report going on about all the potentialities of this place. It has a wonderful climate, he claims. It has very fertile ground. You can plant fruit and vegetables there. The native people are very friendly and they have all of these cattle that you can trade relatively cheaply. And uh, interestingly enough, now enters on the scene a man who is a household name here in South Africa called Jan van Rubiek. He came back on that return fleet from the East Indies in March 1648. He then saw an opportunity and he then himself wrote a report on Pruitt's report, absolutely singing the praises of Table Bay and Table Valley and saying how fantastic it would be and all the profits that could be made. And on the basis of this, the directors decided in 1650, in early 1651, that they should try this. And von Rybiek, who ingratiated himself with them, was asked to lead the expedition and to become the commander of the service station. What sort of man was Jan van Rybiek? That's interesting. So, first of all, he was very ambitious. He went to the East Indies as a young man, and he ended up working in Tonkin, which is in Vietnam. It was a small station there, trading post. And after a few years, there were rumors that he enriched himself, was engaged in private trade, which was very strictly forbidden by the VOC. It was never proven, he was never found guilty of this, but he was asked to leave to go back to the Netherlands. And I think he saw the signs correctly in 1648. And then he claimed, I have been to the East Indies a couple of times and I've stopped in Table Bay a few times and I have all this experience. This will be a fantastic place and I'm the right man for this. So he was very ambitious, but he was also impatient. So he was relatively young when he became commander in his early 30s. And if you read his diary, he seems extremely over-optimistic all the time. But one has to keep in mind that copies of this diary is every year is sent back to the Netherlands and the directors would read it very carefully. And so he's constantly stressing all the new initiatives he took and all the wonderful things that he was doing. But in the meantime, the first few years were absolutely disastrous. There was no going around it. There were all kinds of problems with the climate, with the koi koi, who didn't want to trade always, and so on and so forth. And it's also soon became clear that he was doing all of this because he wanted to leave. <laughs> this is so ironical because for a long time, Van Riebeek was held up as the founder of white South Africa. But this was a man who, within a couple of years of landing at the Cape, was constantly writing back, can I be transferred to the East? Can I go out somewhere else? He was clearly a frustrated man. The Cape didn't turn out to be the, the wonderful success he thought it would be. You alluded there to the fact that he has been known as the kind of father of white South Africa. Is it fair to say that his attitudes not only shaped the early years of the settlement, but in fact, things that transpired in those first decades arguably laid the foundations of racism and apartheid centuries later? This is a very difficult question, which I fear I cannot answer in one sentence. I would like to point out that in their instructions to Van Riebeek, the directors of the VOC stressed immensely that he must never antagonize the Khoikhoi, that they are a crucial ingredient 
in the makeup of the Cape and that they must always maintain friendly relations because they rely on the trade with livestock. And because Van Riebeek is constantly trying to prove himself, at times antagonized them because sometimes they were unwilling to trade for all kinds of reasons. And he felt that I'm going to be a failure. And he became really at times impatient with the Khoi Khoi for several reasons by the late 1650s. There's actually a small-scale guerrilla war between the Khoi Khoi in the area of Greater Cape Town now and the Dutch. And Sir Van Riebeek even at times suggested enslaving the Khoi to the VOC commanders, but they again always reminded him, don't antagonize them. Because one of the things, the Khoi Khoi, because they didn't practice agriculture, they were unwilling to work in the fields. They were unwilling to do the sort of work that Europeans were used to. So there is this complicated relationship Van Riebeek had with the Khoi Khoi. If you look at the long-term history of Dutch South Africa, this 150 years period from 1652 to the end of the 18th century, it's very clear that the first half of it, up till about the 1710s, 20s, it was an open society. And there are numerous cases of European men marrying slave women particularly. And it's only around about the 1710s, 20s that there's a process of a hardening of race relationship, which became worse in the course of the 18th century. I think that the real reason is slavery and the relationship of European settlers to slaves and the assumption that they are these dark-skinned people who will be our slaves and they will work for us. And I think that has a germ in it that in the 19th century spread when white people started to move further into the interior of South Africa, and that would affect their race relations with black African tribes on the high felt. Right, so it's not just the relationships with the Nkoikoya or the Sun, it's the importation of enslaved peoples from West Africa that's creating actually what must have been a unique culture in the world in the late 17th century, a society of Europeans, enslaved peoples, and the indigenous peoples there. Yes, exactly. One of the solutions that Van Riebeek came up to the endless struggles was to allow some of the men that came with him as employees of the VOC to become independent farmers, that he would give them land, he just assumed he could do this, along the Lispiak River, which is at the back of Table Mountain, and that they would become what was called at the time free burghers. A burger is a citizen. The relationship between the free burghers and the VOC is very complicated because the free burghers thought of themselves as free citizens with the same rights as they would have had in the Netherlands, but the VOC always viewed them as subjects. Even though they may be free to pursue their own economic gain, they were still subjects of the VOC. And so it was only a dozen or so men that he first allotted farms in 1657. But because of the Khoi Khoi's unwillingness to work as laborers, he then convinced the company, the VOC, to allow them to import slaves. And so the VOC then agreed to do this. And in 1658, Van Riebeek sent two expeditions to the Atlantic coast of Africa, and they brought back a sizable number of slaves, from 270 at the time when there were only just over 100 people at the Cape. I'm talking about settlers. It is very important to remember two things. First of all, because the Cape was so small, the VOC said, no, you can't keep all of these slaves. About half of them were sent on to the east. They didn't all stay at the Cape. But it was also the only time in the history of slavery at the Cape that slaves came from the Atlantic world. From the 1660s onwards till the early 19th century, 
They came from the Indian Ocean. Later on in the 17th century, they came particularly from Madagascar, this island off the east coast of Africa, which was a huge slave trading area. And then later on, from the late 17th century into the first half of the 18th century, they tended to come from South Asia, which also had a lot of Dutch trading centers, particularly in Ceylon, Sri Lanka. And then in the middle 18th century, they tended to predominate Indonesia, Southeast Asia. And then by the end of the 18th century, they mostly came from Mozambique and East Africa. Yes, about half of the slaves were Africans, if you count them overall, and half of them were Asians, but there's a very small influence of West African slavery. And I think your question about how unique this society is pretty unique because the Cape is this interesting case study where it's between two worlds. It's between the Atlantic world, which most people are very familiar with, this complicated trading networks between four continents. But it then also swings to the east and the Indian Ocean world, which, yes, is also a slave-based society, but a very different type of slave-based society with very long and very complicated indigenous cultures. And so in the course of the 18th century, you have this real interesting, it's almost not as strong as in South America, but it's almost like a mestizo culture developing at the Cape, where you have an intermixture of slaves from across the Indian Ocean, Europeans from various parts, not just the Netherlands, but also Germany, Scandinavia, and a little bit from France even, and the Khoikhoi. The Ides of March, the 15th of March, it's perhaps the most famous, or shall we say infamous, day in the ancient history world because it was on that day in 44 BC that Julius Caesar, dictator of Rome, was assassinated in a Senate meeting. But what do we know about the events of the Ides of March 44 BC? Did Shakespeare get anything right? And what happened next? Well, every Sunday, this March on the Ancients from History Hit, we're going to find out this is the time for our special mini-series of episodes all about the Ides of March, the events of the day itself, the legacy of this day in ancient history, some of the characters involved, and so much more. So make sure you tune into the Ancients from History Hit every Sunday for our special Ides of March mini-series. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about Wix. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. 
This is After Dark, Myths, Misdeeds and the Paranormal. The podcast that takes you to the shadiest corners of the past, unpicking history's spookiest, strangest and most sinister stories. I'm Maddie Pelling. And I'm Anthony Delaney. Join us every Monday and Thursday and we'll take a look at the darker side of history, from haunted pubs to Houdini to witch trials and arsenic-laced breakfasts. Follow After Dark, Myths, Misdeeds and the Paranormal wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. You alluded there to the growth of the settlement. Can you give me some idea of its size and how quickly it grew? It grew very slowly. The first decade was very tough, and this experiment with the Freeburgers, when everybody thought it would be a huge success, it wasn't, for a simple reason in that these men who worked for the VOC were mostly raised in the Netherlands or some in Germany, and they were used to European climates, European soil types, and European ways of farming. So they tried to replicate the European-style intensive farming, where you farm with a lot of different types of plants and other things, on a small piece of land, and it didn't work in the Cape. And indeed, things became so bad by the late 1660s and 1670s that the VOC actually considered closing down the station in Cape Town. That has partly to do with bigger global forces because the VOC itself was in a crisis in the late 60s and 1670s. The profits went down. Readers will probably know about the Franco-Dutch War in the 1670s. In 1672, the Netherlands gets invaded by France. There's also the Third Anglo-Dutch War in 1672-74. So that's why the 1670s was a crisis period for the Cape. And a lot of Freeburgers who started off farming realized they couldn't make a success of it. And they would move to the small settlement in Table Valley. And they would open taverns or lodging houses or perform other trades. And it's only in 1679 with the arrival of a new commander called Simon van der Stel. And he realized very quickly that the mistake that they were making was to practice this intensive type farming and that the climate and the soil were not suited to this. And he encouraged farmers to focus on one crop like grain or vineyards, and that's what you plant because the Cape has a sort of Mediterranean climate. And during Van der Stel's, he reigned for 20 years until the end of the 17th century. That is when the Cape really started to expand. And a lot of the little towns around Cape Town that people know, like Stellenbosch, Paul, Tulbach, and so on, were founded during this period. And very quickly, more and more, because we are now talking about a generation later from the 1650s, so you already have children of those original settlers, and they all start to move further and further into what we call the Boerlong, this kind of part of the southwestern Cape that gets a fair amount of rain and is good agricultural land. So in 1679, when Simon van der Stel's reign started, there were only 233 burgers. But by the time he retired, that increased fivefold to almost 1,200. And then you have to add the slaves. They were always came to 20% more slaves. So by the end of the 17th century, there were about 1,700 slaves. And then the Khoi Khoi as well. But we don't know exactly how many they were. Because I should say that the company 
at an annual census, not for the sake of population count, but it's for the sake of taxes. So we have very detailed records about exactly who lived where when. So we have good records for the number of European settlers and the slaves, but virtually no records for the Khoikhoi. Fairly quickly in this 20 years period, it was helped along by the only time that you have type of a mass migration, but that may be an overstatement, in 1688 when about 150 to 200 French refugees, Huguenots, came to the Cape and they were settled in between some of the Dutch farmers because they were Protestant and the VOC was adamantly a Protestant company. You alluded earlier to the disappearance of the Khoi Khoi. Does the process of securing the settlement and moving to this extensive type of farming destroy the livelihood of the Khoi Khoi? Is that what's responsible for their disappearance? Yes, absolutely. It is this desire for livestock. So by the end of the 1650s, the Dutch commander was frustrated because he cannot get enough cattle because these ships are huge with hundreds of people on them and several coming at a time. They required vast numbers of animals. And as I also said, the Khoi Khoi practiced transhumans. And the small group, the Khoring Aikona, who lived in Table Bay, they were not very wealthy. In some ways, they seem to have been outcasts. And by the 1660s, the Dutch in Cape Town started to trade with the Khoi Khoi to the north around Saldana Bay. These were very wealthy. But already by the 1670s, they no longer want to trade because virtually all their cattle had been traded. And there's another war, the second Khoi Khoi Dutch war, with these people to the north. Then the company started to trade with people to the east in what is now the Overberg region or the Southern Cape. But already by the early 1700s was also completed. So that's on the one hand, it's just intense need for livestock from the company, which meant that it's destroying the traditional way of living with the Khoi Khoi. That's one factor. The other one then is this rapid expansion from 1679 onwards of free burgers into the interior who are taking up land, they're settling on land permanently, and they want to keep the pasture for themselves and their own stock. And there's also during this period a lot of court cases of freeburgers who illegally traded with the Khoi Khoi. The VOC was very strict about private trading. All profits should be for the company. And nonetheless, they were raiding parties from the freeburgers into the interior to capture livestock and so on and so forth. So by early 1700s, the first decade, the area which was settled by European farmers had very few independent Khoi Khoi groups. So remember, they lived in small groups or clans and they moved around and they kept their cattle with them. There were very few left. Those who could fled further to the north and the east, there were quite a few who became deracinated and ended up working on farms, often as herders, because they have this tradition of working with cattle. The final blow happened in 1713, when a return fleet from the East Indies unknowingly brought smallpox to the Cape. Now, many Europeans, particularly the older ones who came from Europe, they had some form of immunity, but the Khoi Khoi had never experienced this, and it absolutely destroyed their society. Once again, we don't have exact figures, but historical demographers have worked out that as many as 30 to 40% of the Khoi Khoi in the Western Cape 
died. There would be some kraals, they were called, where they lived with their cattle, and the magistrate of the Salambosch district would go to the north, and he would just find one kraal after the other where everybody was dead. And that meant the complete destruction of the Khoikhoi societies in the southwestern Cape. Those who survived often fled further to the north and the east, into the more arid regions, and much later, in the second half of the 18th century, they come into contact again with Europeans and there are more wars then between the Khoi and European settlers. And you've done some work, haven't you, on the development of the language of Afrikaans. What are the roots of that language? The colony was officially Dutch and it was run and administered by Dutch people who followed Dutch institutions and who had close contacts with the Netherlands. However, the community on the ground came from all over the world. So you have lots of Germans, you have some Scandinavians, I mentioned earlier the French. This is just the Europeans. So all these German and French-speaking people had to learn some form of Dutch. And then they speak what linguists would call a second language variety of Dutch, which isn't quite what the first language variety would be. And then in addition to this, you also have all these other people like the slaves who come from all over the Indian Ocean world. They all come with their own mother tongue. So the languages of Madagascar are actually related to the languages in Indonesia. There's a long history between these two islands. So the slaves had their own mother tongue. Some of them could speak some of the lingua franca of the Indian Ocean world, like Creole Portuguese, and later on Malay, which was the lingua franca of Southeast Asia. And then, of course, you also had the Khoikhoi. The Khoi language is very difficult. Most Europeans could never master it. And one of the saddest things of the colonization of South Africa in the 17th century is the complete loss of Cape Khoi language. We have only a few fragments. And they too had to learn a form of Dutch. And so what you have is a speech community where there's a small minority of people who speak first language Dutch and a whole bunch of other people who speak a whole variety of second language varieties of Dutch, influenced by their own substrate languages, their own mother tongues. And out of this, you develop in the course of a 100 years, until the late 18th century, that the Dutch spoken at the Cape moved further and further away from the metropolitan Dutch and towards something like Afrikaans. That's really fascinating. I suppose finally for today, because it feels like we could carry on with our story well up beyond the 17th century, well into the 18th and 19th. When we're thinking about this early period of South African history in terms of at least its written history and of European settlement, what sort of sources do we have to understand the period? And I'm interested in how the sources we have shape what we know. Yeah, that's a wonderful question. And I will start off by saying what we don't have at the Cape. We do not have a tradition of printed material like newspapers or journals. There was no printing press at the Cape until the early 19th century. So there's nothing like that. We also have sadly very few examples of life writing. So European historians are very privileged to have lots of diaries lots of letters, autobiographies even. Those things are very scarce at the Cape. There are a handful of them. They're well known, but there are not many of them. That means you cannot write a lot about the interior lives of people, of particularly settlers. What we do have is an enormous wealth of administrative records, 
which of all the VOC settlements are probably the best preserved in the Cape. So we have complete census records, tax records. We have voluminous correspondence between the Cape authorities and the VOC authorities in the Netherlands. And those even exist in duplicate in the Netherlands. So you can know a great deal about the administration, about trade, about issues of defense, the bigger political, global politics and stuff like that. And of course, when you try and write the history of the underclass, people didn't leave documents themselves, it becomes very difficult because the Corps left no records themselves. This was an illiterate society and pretty much the same for the slaves. There are a handful of cases over the century and a half of slaves that we know who could read and write, and we have a couple of documents, but the vast majority, 99 plus percent, left nothing. And so what Cape historians have started doing since about the 1980s, pretty much in line with what European historians have done at the same time, is to use court records. We have very detailed court records, both criminal and civil, and they survive in large numbers. And they are fantastic to try and reconstruct, for instance, the lives of slaves. I've been involved in a lot of this type of work. And I would say that is our chief source for issues of social and cultural history. So you can write, and indeed there are people at the moment, there's a bit of a huge industry on the economic history of the Cape because of it's so wealthy and it can be easily serialized. You can easily build a database and work out wonderful comparisons over time. The cultural and social history aspects are much more difficult because you deal with qualitative sources and you need to have special training and that's much more harder to do and consequently there are considerably fewer people who do this kind of work nowadays. Wow, it sounds like there is all sorts of riches there but that you have to work quite hard for them. That is absolutely true, yes. Well, thank you so much for introducing us to this period of the founding of Cape Town and just giving us a sense of that pioneer society and also of the people who were indigenous to South Africa whom they were encountering and how it all worked. It's a really fascinating insight. It feels like we've got much more to talk about, but that was at least a great introduction and I thank you for that. Thank you very much, Susanna. I appreciate that. Thank you so much for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. Take a moment, if you would, to rate the podcast wherever you listen to it, including on Spotify. It really helps new listeners find the show, and we want to spread the Tudor and not just the Tudor love. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.